Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod, all is well, here we are, Monday evening again, and it's the 27th of November. Which it certainly my, is. Which in my household is payday. That is an unusual payday. Uh, I don't know why it's the 27th, it's just one of those things. Well, happy days, just what you want on Cyber Monday. Yeah, it's, it, Probably not the best of timing, but to be fair, Cyber Monday is as disappointing as Black Friday week. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd go with that. I've bought almost nothing. I bought a new fast charger-y GAN thing for thirty quid off Amazon and a USB C to USB C cable, and that's been the extent of my shopping. Yeah, I don't think I've bought anything exciting. Um, no, some Lego, and that's about it. I've got a Peugeot Le Mans car, but shh, don't tell my wife I bought it. I think that's reasonable. We know you like Lego. I think you can get away with that. I do like Lego, and it was nearly half price, so it's pretty good for Lego. It was a good saving on a on a I don't know fourteen hundred piece Lego sets. That's right. That's substantial. That really is. I thankfully my children don't listen to the podcast, but they, as a tradition, still like Lego, even though they're young ladies at this point for Christmas. So their Christmas Lego sets have been sorted too. Awesome. I, there are some savings out there, but. I don't know. I just don't seem to be going on and going, wow, that's an amazing price. Because I think we have so many sales throughout the year. Just not really seeing them, if I'm honest. Uh, anyway, it's episode 96. Should we get straight into follow-up? Let's do it. Uh, I tasked you were watching Pacific Rim last week. Have you done that? So I was tasked with it. I went and bought Pacific Rim for six ninety nine, 4K version on the, I'm going to say iTunes store or Apple TV Plus TV store. I don't know what they call it anymore. Because they're obviously going through the change, aren't they, where they're going to get rid of iTunes. I watched a bit of it and then I wasn't really sure. I think I need to give it my full attention, but it's. I was struggling to get into it, if I'm perfectly honest. What's not to like? It's robots hitting monsters. I just that didn't see my sort of bag, I'm sorry. I will try again, but first stab wasn't great. Might be better if I watched it with some mates or something and got into a bit more and had something to talk to it about. But yeah, I struggled to apologies. So I did try. At least I bought it, downloaded it, started, but got no further. I apologize. I'm genuinely shocked. It's, it's a classic. It looks good. It's got a soundtrack by Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine on the guitar. It's got Idris Elba. It's got the voice of the robot from GLaDOS and Portal deliberately put in there as an Easter egg. And like I said, I can't get over the fact you don't like a bit of robots hitting beasties. It's terrific. I got part way in, so I probably just need to try again, I think is the right word. So leave it with me. Let me have another run at it when I've got maybe the session to do the whole thing in a wanna. But uh, apologies, it's on me. Fair enough. I'm going to go full nerd for a minute. I suspect this might not be our longest show ever. The After Techtober... Silent November has definitely bit and there is almost nothing going on in terms of release of new products or software updates or anything. Even the iOS 17.2 update seems to be taking forever to sort of trundle its way out. So there's not a lot to talk about. We have got some stories. We're going to follow up a little bit in the opening eye nonsense from last week and some other bits and pieces as well. But I thought I'd bore you slightly about my home networking NAS setup and I think you've got some news there too. Yeah, let's do it. Tell us about your NAS. So the home networking part is fine. I've got my two and a half gig Ethernet uh, cards in place. I've got a switch to be able to talk things between them. I took an old computer. I stashed it full of three terabyte hard disks and a couple of SSDs. And I thought, right, let's go build a NAS. The piece of software I was looking for, I thought would be the perfect thing for me, something called TrueNAS. It's kind of open source. It's made by a company called IX Systems or X Systems. It's interesting. This is where the nerdy happens. 
for a number of reasons. Basically, the file system it uses is a thing called ZFS, or ZFS if you're American. In this case, OpenZFS, which is a really clever file system format. For those that don't know, computers for a long time have had whatever the file system of choice is for the vendor. So, for example, Windows for the longest time made use of FAT, then FAT16, FAT32. These days, XFAT, or more likely NTFS, the NT file system. Max made use of HFS Plus. They went to APFS when they moved, well, about six years ago now, I guess, they moved to APFS, which brings with it lots of modern affordances like snapshots and instant copy and deduplication of data and things like that. And they also have fairly fundamental things in them, like looking for things like bit rot, that things don't change over time, or if a file is changed outside of it, then they understand what's going on with that. So more modern, more sophisticated file systems bring with it journaling and all sorts of things. ZFS, ZFS, is the king of all these file systems, really designed for days when your hard disks were hard disks and were spinning, where they could very carefully monitor that. You could do clever things like software raids on them. You could do all sorts of things. Anyway, long story short, TrueNAS runs on that fundamentally. There's two flavors of it. There's an OpenBSD one called TrueNAS Core, and then there's one based on Debian called TrueNAS Scale. TrueNAS Scale brings with it a load of other stuff like you can install applications basically docker containers hidden away from it as well as nas things that you'd expect like you can have a, an smb share or you can have an nfs share or you can use ssh on it and it's all got this great zfs file layer underneath it it's got reasonably robust credential stuff and you can install other things i got the basics working really easily could i get the applications to install with jellyfin or plex or any of these other things could I hell? Seemed extremely difficult, and actually setting the credential levels for it was, was a problem. So I thought, okay, I've got time, I'm messing about with this NAS anyway, ain't a big deal. I'll try a couple of the other ones. And the two other main players of this are a thing called Open Media Vault, which is also based on Debian, also free, doesn't make use of ZFS, but is a lot more sort of simplistic uh, to get your head around. As kind of app support, but not so good. Also very easy to set up in terms of NFS and... Um, uh, SMB file sharing but uh, other than that mm, not great the RAID support didn't seem very good it's not as good with the disks very hard to do applications didn't like the look of it and it has this really annoying feature with everything you'd go in the web GUI to change like enable SMB sharing you need to do all this set up the disks and then you click a button every time because there's an operation pending and then it thinks about it for like three minutes and it was just so slow and clunky I couldn't cope with that so I got rid of that then there is a trial of a thing called Unraid, which runs on very low-powered computers indeed, that I had a look at, which is really designed for taking 10 or 11 disks, turning them into one very large big disk if you want to do it, and going on. It costs 50 quid. There was a, a Black Friday sale going, but I thought I'd try the trial for a week. Hated it instantly. Couldn't make sense for head or tail of it, so I'm back on TrueNAS. And with a bit of persistence, I've now got it working. So I now have built out of old 3 terabyte hard disks. I've got four old 3 terabyte hard disks in it. I've got one one terabyte NVMe SSD, and I've got a 250 gig NVMe SSD just for installing uh, the, the TrueNAS operating system on. And so far, it seems to be working. I've got the application sorted out. It's really simple to put provision uh, SMB shares and NFS shares around the place. So I'm I'm kind of getting there with it. And my ultimate plan will be to set up a thing called rsync, which allows synchronizing between two file systems. Doesn't really matter what they are. It's it's Linux or, Linux or Mac have it fundamentally built in to back up from this NAS to my Synology NAS and I'll just use that surely as not backup because RAID isn't a backup but just to increase the performance of my NASs around the place and that's my epic story of NAS finding. 
Wow, you've been on quite a journey. Um, when you said ZFS, I'm right in thinking that was going to come to the Mac at some point, 15-ish years ago, give or take. It was a long time ago. They even announced it, but pulled it before the final release, if I remember correctly. So interesting, they're still going and is a thing. And obviously, they were going to do ZFS. They never did. They carried on with HFS Plus, I think it was called, for a long time. And then obviously, all Apple devices flipped to Apple file system, APFS. And we've been on that for the last five or six years, as you say. And fair play to Apple. They came up with a file system that worked from your watch to your telly to your phone to your iPad to your Mac. And it kind of just worked across everything. And I assume it's like even in your HomePod and things. Obviously, that's got an OS on it. So... You get an A for trying all these things. This is probably why I quite happily go and buy a Synology because I just don't want to do that. I think you've got more persistence in that area of playing with stuff than what I would ever have. Yeah, I mean, there's a curiosity in what makes the machine tick for me that I want to know how it all sort of comes together. And I see how Synology do it now. I, I do understand. Um, and their expertise is quite nicely finished hardware not always of the highest spec components as we talked about last week the restrictions on the ethernet port and all that kind of stuff but um they wrap it in a software layer and the software layer makes it very easy to understand so if you do want to do something like install the way uh, the office component of it so you and i can share our show notes that's very straightforward to do if you want to share it with somebody on the internet that's very straightforward to do whereas these more open source systems, they'll do the basics for you. But when you want to sort of push the envelope and sort of understand what's under there, you've got to know what you're doing yourself to a certain extent. And I quite like that. So TrueNAS, I'm getting on a little bit better with. I'm still sort of, who knows, it may all come crashing to the ground and I'll just turn it back into the, the machine that it was before, which was my Proxmox virtual machine server. But I think this is good. I'm, I'm making progress. I've figured out, I think, how the applications things work. And that's quite clever. The Docker environment for it is quite clever without having it get down and dirty with Docker like you, you would normally have to do. So I'm I'm encouraged so far. Um, I just needed to persist with it a bit more. But I was quite curious to try these other things anyway. You definitely get an A for effort in your persistence. Like I said, I just wouldn't have that. So fair play to you. I still haven't sorted out a NAS solution for home. So I'll watch this space. Um, I probably should have looked a bit harder, I guess, whilst the Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales were on. But just didn't really see any discounts out there, so I've left it. Um, oh, I agree with you. And I don't. I think the only thing about Black Friday or Cyber Monday is it's only cheap if you were going to buy it anyway. Yeah, there is that. You are right, I think. I've picked up a couple of little things. One thing I did pick up was a USB-C to 2.5 gigabit Ethernet adapter because it was about 20-odd pounds. And I thought, actually, that's quite a good price. And it was a Belkin one. I like the Belkin accessories. I've bought those before. So I bought that, and I've put that in for me mac that i'm talking to you now and it obviously works on my ipad when i plug that into this monitor now all i need to do is upgrade the rest of the network so i've made a small step but again i thought i'll pick it up well it's i think that's a fair price for all it is and then i was looking at some netgear two and a half gigabit switches but again no discount so i'll sit and wait and bide my time until the equipment hits a price i'm comfortable to pay i think no i think that's prudent i might try and push you towards some other manufacturers other than uh, Netgear. I think they're okay. They're a bit dull. Um, you can probably do better uh, for your money than, than that or go the super cheap Chinese route, which is the way I've gone for the moment, just until you have a better understanding of the requirements that you're going to have. Yeah, that's fair. And I need to work out exactly what ports, how many ports I need and where I need them because I could probably do the little refresh. Um, is that fair it enough. for home networking? 
I think that is it for home networking. We've taken a fairly decent sort of wander down that path. So have you got anything else for follow-up? The only thing I was going to mention is we discussed the Apple Music Classical app coming to iPad last week. I can't remember if I mentioned in the show, but my brain thought, I wonder if they've done this so that it's then ready for Vision OS. Because obviously got Vision OS launching, it basically runs iPad apps. So I wonder if that's why it's now launched on the iPad ahead of Vision OS. That was all I was going to say on it. It's a very small thing, but it just, just dawned on me. I don't think I mentioned it last week. Yeah, it's not a bad thought. I want to see it on the Mac, though. I I don't like this focus on iPhone, then iPad, then maybe, if you're lucky, the Mac, because it kind of goes against their hardware strategy for the moment. The the Mac is very much number one, well, number two after the iPhone, more than iPad. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I don't get why it's not there. I think it, well, as we said last week, it's because they've hamstrung themselves where they're trying to share too much with Apple Music, and they should have divorce them both it would have been a lot easier i agree should we do some news let's get into the news then so apple is giving iphone 14 owners an extra year of free emergency sos so i think when they launched the iphone 14 was the first year they launched satellite sos services if i remember correctly and we're all getting it well i guess people with an iphone 14 get it for now for a further year before they start trying to monetize it yeah, we were waiting for the other shoe to drop with this, weren't we? Because they said at launch you got a year's service, so we thought, that are they going to build this into Apple Plus, the Apple Plus account, I mean, Premier, Apple Premier account? I forget. Is that... Well, it could either go in iCloud Plus or it could go in the Apple One bundle, I guess. Or it could just be a completely separate, you know, satellite package, I guess. It's a couple of quid bolt-on. Yeah, it's difficult though, isn't it? I think we talked about it in this podcast before. This is potentially life-saving and you're going to tie it into a subscription. I think it looks better if they just sort of bundle it in with the cost of the device. I can't believe it gets used that much. No, I can't imagine it gets used much, but I guess they've got to have all the infrastructure in place. There's probably quite a big expense on the infrastructure side and you're going to have to get the money back. So it's going to be another service revenue. But for me, I want it to be part of the Apple One bundle or iCal Plus because that's all included and I just get it. That would be ideal and I'd love for all my family to have it and it's all just rolled into that family plan. That would be ideal for me. It seems to me it's the kind of thing that you could build after. <laughs> you know, I would take that as well. If I don't take it out and I want to use it in a life-saving situation, build me whatever you want. Yeah, because if it saved your life or you know got... These, the, uh, this year they've announced they'll send a mechanic to fix a tire or whatever you're stuck in the middle of nowhere to, then you really needed it. So I, I think anybody would say, oh, it's a $150 cap for every call out or something like that. Then most people would be quite happy with that. It's like an excess charge, isn't it, if you have a claim on your insurance. So yeah, it seems odd that they haven't really announced how they're going to monetize it yet. They must have a business case, you would have thought by now. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think at the end of the day, this is quite good. They, they, it's the kind of thing they should if they're going to give it away for free for another year that's fine it applies to everybody retrospectively I wonder if that means those of us that bought iPhone 15s will get two years free if they do start charging for next year maybe but I guess there's got to be a cut off at some point well we'll see it took them quite a while to start charging for Apple TV Plus but they're sort of deeply into that now yeah part of that was pandemic related though I think maybe they did launch it a fair bit before the pandemic came along no but I think the pandemic then happened whilst whilst it was in the initial launch phase and therefore slowed generation of new content. That is a possibility, but uh, look where they are now. I do think they're going to run out of content due to these actor strikes, though. Yeah, quite possibly. We have had a recent flood of content, not just on Apple TV, but across various places like Netflix. And 
lots of big American directors doing films recently, and so maybe we are due, we are due, due a drought. I think we are. Should we move on to the next story? Yeah, we've got coming up more Google and search revenue. Well, I just think this is worth talking about every so often. So we said there'd been a, a slip up in court last week that somebody had given the nod that how much Google was giving Apple to maintain its position as being the default search engine in Safari. But this is a story that's on Ars Technica about Google giving 30%, 36% search revenue share, which is three times what Android uh, original equipment manufacturers get. This just seems bonkers to me. I guess that generally Android OEMs are smaller than Apple. You know, in uh, I guess a, a Huawei or someone like that sells far fewer devices with Google things on them than Apple does in totality. But it seems like a huge amount of money for Google to be giving Apple for this. It does seem like a huge amount and three times more expensive. That's huge. I don't know how big Samsung's phone business is, but it's got to be pretty sizable, hasn't it? And yet there they are looking at Apple going, well, we're building Android phones, you know, based on Google's OS. And yet we're getting a third of what Apple are getting. It's crazy, isn't it? And my take is that this is very anti-competitive. You know, you've got a monopoly in Apple, kind of, with the App Store and, and the browser, and you've got a monopoly with Google and their search engine, and they're taking money off one, each, uh, off one another to do these kinds of things. And that's just wrong, really. It's, it's anti-competitive to the rest of the market. I don't think Apple comes out of it looking good. As we look at their increasing revenue share year-on-year year in services, and I presume that this money is part of that, anti-competitive and unfair and monopolistic and all those things. You've got a levy at both companies. Yeah, not one part of this does Apple look good, I think. Google's obviously spending a literal truckload of money on this and Apple just looks worse and worse all the time because it's just drawing attention to them that they are just a capitalist company after all and not as holy as sometimes they preach. And that's, I guess that's painful for us who historically have been on the Apple side of the fence and they've been the little underdog and the scrappy company that came back from almost extinction and we sort of root for them. Uh, I've heard other podcasts refer to it as being like your sports team. That's why you shout them on and why you're such such fans of the products and that's certainly been the case for both of us for, for a long time and we do a whole podcast about it, let's face it. But this is nasty, for want of a better word. Yeah, not a good look at all. Not at all. Should we talk about something else that makes no sense? Yeah, so you've uh, put in a link for Sam Altman, set to return as CEO from The Guardian. I've put in a BBC link as well, just because I quite like some of the BBC news. Um, but this is just crazy. I think last week we reported that um, Sam Altman was the CEO of OpenAI and he got sacked by the board, but we didn't really know why he'd been sacked by the board. Um, and then they tried to get him back and then he no, he was definitely going. And then Microsoft said, well, we're employing everybody from OpenAI that wants to leave OpenAI and come to Microsoft and head up our new um, AI division and this Sam Altman gentleman will be the CEO of this new division and then that's kind of where we left the story even though there were talks I think even while we were recording last week that he may may go back to open AI and then there was a thing in the week Decoder, The Verge, you know, they, they did a podcast around the whole series of events of where it got to. And they were rushing to get the podcast out because they're like, by the time this is published, the world may have moved on again. But it is all just bonkers. And Sam Altman himself even posts on social media a picture of him with a guest pass going back to OpenAI. And basically the caption said, first and last time I'm going to be a guest here. So either I'm coming back as an employee or I'm never coming back in this building. So quite an 
interesting ultimatum. But no, he's now back. So it feels like the board of OpenAI completely misread the room and have obviously had to pay handsomely to bring the guy back in to be at the helm again. Yeah, and he's fired quite a bunch of the board as a, as a consequence. Yeah, Without spoilers for all mankind, but there's been a similar episode in For All Mankind this week where uh, a CEO comes back and fires a bunch of people on the board very publicly at the shareholders meeting. And it just made me think of this, really, that it's art imitating life or life imitating art, but clever guy, lots of people behind him. The star of the year has been ChatGPT, as we said last week. And then, you know, to treat him like this and for the people, everybody who wants to leave with him, and then is he to go to Microsoft? Isn't he going to Microsoft? Is he going to spin off somewhere else? Is he going to do something else? And then he's back and he's probably in an even greater position of power than he was before based on how much you know stock price dived and everything as a, as a consequence of it. So it's just the most strange story. And then I've also linked another story which might be related to this that apparently one of the reasons the board wanted to fire him was some other breakthrough that ChatGPT or the company where OpenAI were going to do about this Q star which the AI is so good it could threaten humanity, which is probably a bit overblown as most of these stories are. But this came up as potentially part of the reasons the board got rid of him. No, I did read that. And then at the bottom of the article, so the one about Q-Star, it says, potentially from The Verge, a person familiar with the matter told The Verge that the board never received a letter about such a breakthrough and the company's research progress didn't play a role in Altman's sudden firing. So the story looks credible and then you get to the end it's like well it may not not have even happened the whole thing just seems very fishy and not a nice thing for a company to have played out very publicly because it just doesn't reflect well upon the company no but it does make you wonder about the machinations of large business really doesn't it that you know is this planned that the board decided to do it in order to have a reshuffle so the company could gain value to show how much microsoft wanted them show how important the technology was for the world or are they really as incompetent as they seem to be. I mean, it's almost a governmental scale of incompetence, this, with this coming and going, and you get rid of the visionary, and the prime minister leaves, and then the people want him back, or whatever the various thing is that happens here. But you're right, nobody comes out of this looking good. The board don't look good, Microsoft don't look good, Sam Altman doesn't look good. It's just a bad feeling all around, and doesn't give you any great faith in the technology, particularly with link to stories like this, which we've linked to the 9to5Mac article, article, but it was via Reuters. So, you know, it's a credible news source. No, it is. I don't, I think you're right though. Nobody looks good on this. The OpenAI board ugh, makes you wonder how they got appointed, to, to be fair, and how they made, made this. I wonder if more will come out and actually the exact reasoning, because again, it's back to that ownership bit that I talked of last week. It, again, now he's back in, it feels like a statement is needed to go, I got fired because of X. We've discussed it. The board is now gone. We're going to put better controls in place. You know, why is going to happen now? And we're going to be, you know, take account for our actions. It's all very bizarre, but I would imagine what will happen is it will just get swept under the carpet. Yep. They'll release some other bit of technology. The moves, new cycle will move on and it will never be visited again. Yeah, that's pretty much what's going to happen here. But yeah, it's, it's good reading and worth looking at the Q-Star uh, th- uh, article as well on 9to5Mac um, but yeah all, all really good but just I mean maybe they've li- they've tried to liven up um, dull November with <laughs> with a random firing of a CEO yeah I guess it took a rise off Twitter for a little bit didn't it formerly X no now X formerly Twitter I keep seeing that written down in places I wonder how long it's going to take for people to stop writing formerly Twitter you know when when they mention the platform X it's really bizarre 
It is really bizarre. Uh, let's move on to a, a bad bit of news for Apple again. Uh, apparently the Safari share menu, so if you're in Safari and you go to share a link with somebody um, to put into iMessage or uh, Twitter or something like that, it's actually capt- capturing your IP address as you're doing that as well, which I just think is a horrific violation. I mean, it's probably a basic software that somebody has overlooked when they've been writing the shares, share sheet thing. But again, this is just an appalling oversight of, of quite sensitive information. Yeah, so showing your IP address and potentially your hardware type and browser and things. This does not need to be included in any of that, surely. It just it feels very dated and needs to be cleaned up. I'd imagine there's more things like this in especially macOS where some of the architecture dates back a long time. And obviously the world has moved on, especially in the last 10 years, of what is acceptable and this is not acceptable. Yeah, it's not good enough. I mean, all you need is a URL. That's what you're sharing when you do a share sheet. All I want to do is send this link to my friend, my family, whoever else it is that you, you want to do this, incorporate it in somewhere else. You do not need to share your IP address to Apollo. Yeah, no, shocking. It's, yeah, strange it's still in there, given how much Apple tell us Safari is the safest way to go online, as it were. It is. Moving on, uh, I've managed to find a link to get a a proper motorcycling story into the main part of the news, so go me. I just thought this was interesting. I don't know what it's like in the Formula One world, but there has been a team this year called Crypto Data RNF, which is a NFT seller, effectively. They're selling, you know, that is their business, is non-fungible tokens, as they were called. They've had a team for a year, not a first-rate team, second-rate team using two pair uh, two of last year's motorcycles and the the governing body urta and dorna have said they won't renew the contract due to being problematic in their portrayal of MotoGP and sort of the vision of the sport the exact phrasing is repeated infractions and breaches of the participation agreement affecting the public image of MotoGP have obliged this decision so yesterday was the end of the season today is the official start of testing and one of the teams just the day after has been told it's unable to compete next year. So this is incredible. Yeah, I haven't seen that before. I mean, Formula One's probably a bit different. There's only 10 teams. There are lots of crypto company, c- companies now involved, though, like Red Bull. They've got Bybit on their, on their back spoiler. And OKX, I think, is McLaren's. So crypto's clearly making entrance. But um, in the Formula One world, which also ended at the weekend for this year, they're not coming back for another race for 90 odd days and i think testing will be in 60 70 days time so we we get a longer i think snooze period um but it's only 10 teams and there is talk of an 11th team and it's quite fraught how you get in and you've you've got to get not only f1 to sign off on it but the fia and stuff so it's i think it's quite a different world because it's it's so small if that makes sense um and i think some of the teams also get they get a same whether a new team's allowed, if that makes sense. So it's a bit more democratic. Yeah, that's not a million miles away from what happens here. It's quite small. There's only a limited number of manufacturers. You know, Ducati, Aprilia, KTM, Honda, Yamaha are, are, are pretty much the only manufacturers that take part in it. There's the MSM, which is the motorcycle manufacturer's governing body, who get to say, say Suzuki wanted to join, then... They're not going to join because they left. But, you know, they get a say on that. And then there's all things like concessions. So if you're a new team, you might get more time testing or something like that compared to a team that was already there because you need to get up to the same sort of level as everybody else. But it's odd that this is a sponsor more than anything else. So it would be like Red Bull, as you said, doing something that breaches the Formula 1 code of practice. The bikes are still allowed to race because they're Aprilia's. 
it's the sponsor of the of the of the team that's the problem here. So I just think it's interesting that it, is it crypto particularly that they had a problem with that it's bringing the sport into ill repute, or is it just some way of behaving with them? Or maybe it's some of their business practices or something else. It's hard to know. With Formula One, they had a who are when the war with Russia began and they had a Russian driver and a Russian sponsor in one of the American teams. And so they had to axe the driver and the sponsor in quite quick succession. I think motorsport and all all sorts of sports are actually vulnerable to this kind of thing because Formula One, where this is a slight left turn for the podcast. You can tell there's not a lot of news this week. It it has this previous thing where it was tobacco manufacturers were the major sponsors in in motorsport. True in motorcycle racing as well. Philip Morris sponsored Ducati for years and years and years and years and years, as they did for Marlboro, I think they were, one of their brands in, in Formula One. When you got a ban on tobacco sponsorship, that massively impacted the sport on who could sponsor, what was going on, all the rest of it. And they all moved to energy drinks instead. So you'd see quite a lot of Red Bull, Monster, and others not sponsors of the show. You know, certainly personally on riders and occasionally on the bikes themselves. So, and that's probably not sustainable either. So it is interesting how motorsport has got to look to these other avenues to sort of fund what's going on and that's only the top level we as fans get to see who knows what the dodgy dealings are like underneath the surface yeah no you're right i think there's a lot that's obfuscated from us the the fans as you say interestingly formula one is a lot of tech companies on cars a lot of petroleum companies and you're right about the cigarette advertising when that was a thing the races would go to certain countries where cigarette advertising was banned and they'd have to like blank out the logos or do something different and show like barcodes instead. It was quite interesting. Whereas, yeah, a lot of it now is actually things like Heineken Zero and things. It's it's quite interesting how it's gone. Heineken do sponsor some of the circuits, and it's all about their don't drink, don't drive. You know, have zero alcohol. So it's it's very different from the old days, I guess, of booze and cigarettes being <laughs> being the mainstay of advertising. But you're right; it's a slow news week. I mean, apologies, I've gone off in the weeds a little bit. I don't think it's a bad thing because let's face it, it is related to tech and all of these, th- tech is featured in MotoGP as well. So Lenovo sponsor the main team now. What was Philip Morrison uh, as discussed on Ducati is now Lenovo, which is a laptop manufacturer, desktop manufacturer. So you do get these swaps and you know things like the crypto RNF is, is an interesting consequence of that. I guess there'll be others down the line a little bit, but it does kind of show trends in society. Will we see open AI at some point on the side of a bike or a car? Well, AI will probably determine what advertising should go on the car and where it should go and how many conversions they get. Yeah, that's that's a disturbing thought. Should we move on and talk about a different kind of car? Yeah, let's talk about Tesla. Let's talk about Tesla. And this is an article in the Register where um, Tesla are being sued in the States uh, by a number of families, actually. But this particular one is that the car's autopilot software is deficient, has led to fatalities and the ruling or what looks like is going to happen in this particular trial is that there is reasonable evidence that Tesla and Elon Musk were aware of deficiencies in autopilot that caused the 2019 death of a Model 3 owner. And this is in Florida at this point. So this is writing on the wall a little bit for autopilot. Yeah, it's not good, is it? I'm amazed the autopilot's got as far as it has before there's been more legislation and and what have you stepping in on it. So it's be interesting to see where this one's going to go. I've talked before about my experience of using, and it's not even the true autopilot I have, it's literally lane following and adaptive cruise control is what my Tesla has. So it will, you can set a distance from the car in front of you from quite close to quite far away. 
it will break all the way down to zero. If traffic comes to a halt, it will accelerate up again afterwards. I had previous cars with adaptive cruise control that do the braking, but if you came to a halt, you had to drive away by yourself. It will do lane following so you can take your hands off, but keep them near the wheel. It will whinge if you leave them off the wheel for too long, but it will track painted lines on a motorway, effectively, or on an A-road. The full, full bean software which they have and is allowed in America, it's not allowed in the UK because it hasn't been deemed to be safe enough, will do things like take you off the motorway and navigate you around town and stop at lights and do all this kind of stuff for you too, which I, based on the phantom braking I get just with the, the level of uh, software support I have on the Tesla, would not trust in a million years. Yeah, so I've never used even adaptive cruise control. I obviously have cruise control, but I've never done any more than that, so I've got no experience. But in a way, I'm glad it's not allowed over here. I think... I still think it's too new and it needs more, a lot more ratification, I think. I just, I'd be uncomfortable, I think. I think we have, we may have even talked about it on the podcast, Ford have got one stretch of motorway in the UK where you can completely take your hands off the wheel and relax and just let the car drive you somewhere on the M6. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So only on the Ford Mustang Mach-E, only on a particular stretch of motorway, and you've got to pay for some 20 quid a month upgrade to the car. Subscription pricing. For every little thing. I've got to say, I quite like adaptive cruise control, particularly in not great weather, that it makes you safer. You put it on, and as long as you're a fully engaged human driver with your foot hovering over the brake and the steering wheel, you've got an extra level of support, I think. You should obviously, everybody should slow down and obey the speed limits and drive to the weather conditions and all the rest of it. But actually having something that's also watching distances in cars and things like that, as long as you're aware of its limitations, I think is actually safer. But, up to a level and that level is literally it's watching the distance from the car in front of you yeah no i get that i think it's one of those things i need to try and build up confidence with but what does your car buy? have it i can buy it as a 700 pound upgrade it's a one-time purchase so i've obviously got the hardware for it it's just not enabled in the firmware interesting very interesting should we move on and talk about spotify and a dodgy deal with google the second dodgy deal with Google. So we talked about Spotify last week, or was it the week before, not paying artists. Apparently Spotify also now pays 0% commission fees when it uses its payment processor rather than Google Play. So that is a real sweetheart deal considering all the various legislations and app stores and fighting that we've seen between the Apple Apple Store and Google Play. I'm amazed that this is allowed to happen. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? And it does feel like the big companies can play by their own rules. Whereas the smaller companies definitely cannot. So not a good look for Spotify or Google this. No, so Spotify handed over 4%. Most of these app stores demand 30%. There have been you know, various initiatives as low as 15% sometimes. We knew bigger people got away with it. Google sells a music store too. They're not allowing Epic to do this. This is just the most confusing thing ever. They must be really desperate for Spotify to have a good experience on their platform. Yeah, well, I guess they're going to want Spotify on there. It's the biggest competitor to Apple Music, isn't it? And Google YouTube Music, is it? I don't even know what it's called these days, but it's not really not really a forerunner, is it? No. How bad does this look to a judge? You know, They're fighting Epic on one side, saying we're not going to let them get away with using their own payment processor. They must pay the 30% or the 20% sweetheart deal, whatever it is they've worked out. But in the meantime, this lot over here are only paying 4% and they can use their own payment processor. I mean, that is monopoly at the height of monopoly. 
that is really not a good look, is it? Because it's double standards. So it's where do you draw the line? Yeah, I mean, I would assume that Apple are going, no, no, you pay the 30%. I hope so. It's You know, you're devil in the deep blue sea. It's too much, for particularly for lots and lots of developers. But a rule is a rule if you enforce it fairly for everyone. You know, they don't seem to have caved to Netflix and others to allow in-app subscription and all that kind of stuff. Or sweetheart deals an in-app subscription to get that over the line. So uh, I would hope they're at least going to be consistent in their implementation of an unfair rule. I was using my Apple TV at the weekend. My subscription for Now TV had expired here in the UK and I wanted to watch the F1. It popped up a screen on the Apple TV, go, you know, do you want to renew for a month or just 24 hours? And I thought, actually, do you know what? It's expensive, but I just do 24 hours. I don't don't want it for a month. I'm, you know, the season's over for 100 days. And I renewed and I did it all on the Apple TV and I thought, huh, I'm surprised by that. I thought they were going to pop up a screen going, go to your web browser, pay for it, and then come back to the app and it'll all work. But it all works seamlessly, to be fair. So I assume now TV are paying Apple 30% of that transaction, but who knows what's happening because there would have been you know a boardroom deal potentially i'm going to talk about something like that in the media section so should we move on and you can tell us about broadcom yeah i thought this was interesting i'm not sure we covered it but broadcom company makes lots of chips largely if i remember correctly like in network devices based in the us they're buying a vmware which is odd because i thought vmware was sold to somebody else but i'm obviously wrong so yeah broadcom buying vmware so you know big chip maker is buying a virtualization technology which is interesting like i say because vmware i thought was dying a little bit and i thought it was like owned by hp or somebody but but there you go what do i know but apparently it's all been approved and it's 55 billion pounds slash 69 billion dollar transaction it's huge i didn't know vmware was so big I know they're big in the enterprise space. I think they're having their lunch eaten by things like Windows Hyper-V and the Oracle, uh, one which slips my memory at the moment, but open source things like Prox, Nox, Mox. Android, obviously, has cloud-based solutions. That, not Android. Amazon has cloud-based solutions that you know provide similar things to spin up servers and, and let you get on with it. So there's a lot... There's a lot in the virtualization space at the moment that if you want to pick something up, you can, you can get on and do it. For a chip manufacturer, and let's face it, they're in our iPhones as well, Broadcom chips, because they run the modems that allow us to talk to each other and make use of the internet. Apple hasn't made the best progress in producing their own ones, even though they bought that business off IBM, I want to say. Intel. Intel, they bought it off Intel. Um, Maybe this is to go from 32-bit to 64-bit, or to go from uh, ARM to Intel, or whatever their own internal thing is. Maybe it's some car, embedded car systems as well. You can understand why having a virtualization layer might be useful for a chip manufacturer, but I agree with you. It's a bit of an odd fit. There are better solutions for cheaper, I would have thought, out there. But who knows how these things work? Yeah, maybe somebody's seen something in the future that we haven't, and this all makes sense. But just interesting, I didn't even realize this was happening. Yeah, big company VMware. I know that they've got a lot of embedded stuff uh, around the world for things like hypermotion of, of, of running servers. So you have a clustered Windows server and a clustered database server and something goes wrong, they can just move to another cluster within your data center. I visited Hewlett-Packard in Bristol many years ago and they were very proud of their VMware installation and how much it was able to, how quickly it was able to fail over should any of the components of the server go wrong. So it's good, but that's quite table stakes these days. You know, even the open source virtual hypervisors have that. Yeah, so I just, like I said, just, just found it interesting. I think you're right, VMware is big in the enterprise space. Yeah, just, just an interesting article. Like I said, I didn't even realize this, you know, £55 billion transaction was going through. Yep, 
Digital car keys. Just a brief one. You and I both use our digital car keys in various ways. The link to the article is just going through some of the consortium behind them. And there's quite an interesting diagram towards the bottom, I think, that explains the, the three different wireless standards, I guess is the right word. You've got NFC. They've called it BLE, which I'm assuming is Bluetooth. And then you've got ultra wideband and Bluetooth. I think my one does stage two, but there is also stage three with the ultra wideband, which is, you know, when you've got your phone on you, your car doors can unlock as you get near it. I would love to have that one, that one, please. But sadly, my car doesn't have it. But it's just interesting to see the different standards. And there's quite a good bit of Q&A with the, the chair of the consortium in that. But I just sort of put it in there. So I find it quite interesting is we've got cars that don't use keys. BLE is Bluetooth Low Energy. Oh, yes, of course it is Bluetooth Low Energy. Thank you. But the idea is it fails back. So the closest thing, the NFC chip in your phone will always work. Bluetooth low energy will get you a little little further away with it, maybe with another app running. And then you've got ultra wideband, which lets you get a little bit further away again, and you'll fail down. So when Apple nook your BMW car key next time on the NFC chip, it will hopefully still work on the Bluetooth low energy. Yeah, and they're also saying, obviously, if your phone runs out of battery, you can still use the the keys in it because of some clever mechanics that work and it's like when you go on the underground here you can use it in express mode i can do that with my car key so i don't need to unlock my phone i just need to wave it near my car in essence yeah and i've used that on the tube uh that you can tap in and use it like an oyster card even if your phone's off so good it is great it's really useful uh can be a bit cranky on watches though i find it you don't always pick up your apple watch every time you go through oyster I'm holding up my analog watch for what to see. So the only problem I had with it is I wore my watch on my left wrist and the reader is always on the right as you go through the... So do you. But the the reader's on the right. And so you, you find yourself leaning across. And I have no idea which wrist is the most common worldwide, but it'd be interesting to know that. You're not meant to wear your watch in your dominant hand, are you? Okay. Well, you're not meant to watch wear an activity tracker on your dominant hand. Is the, is the thinking because if you're working out or something like that you don't want to get that confused for writing or something certainly that was there in the early days of pedometers you didn't want to put them on your dominant thing because you, you're, you're going to over capture what's going on i however do wear my watch on my dominant hand and it sounds like you do too i know i went my left um, are you right-handed i'm right-handed oh, so i'm left-handed i just found it odd when you go through the turnstiles but it kind of makes sense but it'd be better if they just had one on either side but there you go fair play anything else in news no, I think that's it. Like you say, quiet week. Quiet week. Should we do some media? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, I have a similar story to you in that uh, I have a subscription experience. I think I mentioned before I, I was working my way through Sharp. Uh, I watched them all on ITVX, uh, which is a streaming service in the UK. Seems to incorporate BritBox now as well. It's a bit of an odd one. Anyway, I think Brit, BritBox has become defunct. I think they tried it. It was another. I think the problem they had with BritBox is another platform that wants a monthly amount of money, and so yep. therefore did not gain much traction. So ITVX seems to have things that aren't ITV related in it. And and anyway, I was sitting watching, and the adverts started driving me absolutely mental. It was more adverts than show for me moving on to the next thing after Sharp, which is Hornblower, which is like Sharp at Sea, effectively. He's not quite as charming as Richard Sharp. Because he's not Sean Bean. He's a Welsh actor called Johan Griffith, who does a great job, actually. I, re- I really like a bit of Hornblower. Anyway, ads were driving me crazy. I thought, I've had enough of this. I'm going to take the Black Friday offer of one week free and then five or a month or something like five ninety nine a month for ad-free streaming, similar to Channel 4's 4, 4 OD package, actually. 
click the subscribe button, flung up a thing saying double tap on your Apple Watch to accept this. I double tapped and bang, I was done. And I just thought that was a, a lovely, seamless experience. And it worked really well. And they didn't have to watch all the ads. They even showed me the same ad twice in the same ad break before. So it's, it's an easy sell to, to make me spend six pounds on that. Yeah, I love it. So I do do it on channel four. I think it's called four plus. Um, because when we're watching Bake Off or Taskmaster, it is fantastic. But when you watch something live, it's so weird because, oh no, there's adverts to watch because you're just not not used to it, are you? So no, I think it is brilliant. I do pay Channel 4. I think it's about £40 a year, which I'm comfortable with. I try and avoid monthly ones. I just want, want it to come out once and be done, if you know what I mean. And I'd rather pay yearly, but maybe get a couple of months free would be nice. Do you think there's a future where you don't need to pay a TV license because you're paying for the in-app streaming cost? Potentially, yeah. I wouldn't be against it if BBC went this way. Um, it is a bit odd buying a TV license because when my kids say it, they're like, Dad, have we got a TV license? They think it's quite a serious question. You need a license. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah we got one. And are you sure? I've never seen it. I was like, yeah, you, and I'm trying to explain. You kind of do it all online. It just comes out. Like, I think I just recently had a renewal, but it's just a reoccurring monthly fee. Yeah. My daughter at university doesn't have an aerial doesn't have iPlay, won't watch iPlayer, doesn't pay her TV license. She watches it, Netflix and Amazon Prime, and that's it. So she's feeling quite secure, but then she does miss things like, oh, I'd like to watch Bake Off, Dad. No TV license, you can't do it. Do you need a TV license to watch Bake Off on Channel 4? Yes. I thought the TV license was just for the BBC channels. How could they tell you were just watching Channel 4 and not something else? Because you're doing it in an app these days. Well, it doesn't matter. Because your TV got an aerial, you should be paying a TV license. Yeah, okay. Anyway, that's the antiquated British uh, way of life for you. So there we go. Anyway, just a thought for the future. But feedback, Hornblower is great. And so far, ITVX has removed the advert thing. They annoyed me enough that I paid for it. And I suppose that's great. TV is much better without adverts. That's the moral of the story. It is much better without adverts. Moving on. I loved the film Scott Pilgrim. A few years ago, directed by Edgar Wright, starring Michael Cena. No, that's that's the wrestler. What's the chap's name? It's the guy who played Zuckerberg. Yeah, no, it's not. No, it's not, is it? It's no, else. it's not. Michael Sarah. Yes, from Arrested correct. Development. Michael Sarah. I was close, but no cigar. And a bunch of other fairly famous actors, including Chris Evans, who went on to be Captain America. Brandon Ruth, who was Superman, and others. Anyway, there's a cartoon appeared on Netflix called Scott Pilgrim Takes Off. It, Scott Pilgrim was a comic, for those that didn't know, at the outset, and it maintains the art style of the comic. But what's genius about this is they have all the voice cast who were the actors in the actual film back doing the roles in the cartoon. Every single one of them. Chris Evans, Aubrey Plaza, Michael Cera, obviously, Alison Pill, all of them are back. And Scott, uh, not Scott Pilgrim, and Edgar Wright is executive producer as well. So it's fantastic. If you like Scott Pilgrim, you'll, you'll like Scott Pilgrim Takes Off. Yeah, that is cool. It's nice when a faithful, you know, rebirth happens, I think. And it is a retelling. Certainly the first episode is. It's not, you know, uh, picking up immediately after it. It will tell you the story again from more or less where the film was. And what streaming service was this on? This was on Netflix. Of course. I will just put that in there. I might take that, take a look at that. Nice. Uh, Just a little bit of follow-up on For All Mankind. Third episode came out. It's terrific. I love a bit of For All Mankind. Are you caught up? I've not caught up one iota yet. I don't know why. I don't know what I'm going to do on this one, actually. I need to make some time in the calendar, I think, which I'm going to struggle a bit this week. Work's very busy, but yeah, might be next week. And I can see me, though, there'll be three or four out, and then I'll just 
I'll, I'll have a session. That's fair enough. It's very bingeable. Uh, definitely. And I do find that. I do think releasing weekly is the way to go, though. I've come back around to it because it does stretch out your enjoyment, I think, whereas it is very easy just to binge something and then you've, you kind of forget which episode was that, you know. So I do prefer the weekly format. I just haven't got into it yet. Speaking of something that's incredibly enjoyable and has just finished and was released weekly, Taskmaster finished its 10-episode run of season 16 last Thursday. Two thumbs up, or three thumbs up in our house. My sons and I both thoroughly enjoyed it. We watched it on Friday night. It was brilliant. Great bit of family time with them watching it. It's so funny. It's so well done. Yeah, very enjoyable. And one of the best tasks I've ever seen with the Taskmaster Hotel, actually. <laughs> yeah, that, that was insane. That was an absolutely great task. And they've been an interesting bunch this time. They've been far more cooperative than many, with the exception of Julian Clary, maybe. But I just, I, I love Taskmaster. I like the little preview for the Christmas special we're going to have as well. I quite like that you can do both formats. You can have a longer form, 10 episode with some comics and sort of really get involved and embedded with them all. And then you can do a one-off special with people who couldn't probably sustain 10 episodes of it, but still have a lot of fun on the way. Yeah, maybe that's how they do it. If they've got some people lined up that can't commit to the main series. Yeah, we put you on the Christmas special, off we go, job done. I did find Julian Clary quite funny actually I don't know him really I haven't seen much of his stuff but I thought he came across quite well he did make me laugh and the boys the boys were quite taken with him as well actually well Sam Campbell was the standard Julian Cleary was awesome I like them all I'm not 100% sure about Lucy Bowman I'm never sure if that's an actor or that's how she actually behaves but um, Sam Campbell was a real standout for me for, for being a genius yeah he was good fun the boys did like him as well actually he had some great moments where he was trying to do the tasks a little differently to be fair so um, no, it was just such a good good show love it brilliant the velveteen rabbit oh uh, yeah this was one i actually just put on last night for the children it's on apple tv plus it's 40 minutes long it's a very short film it's set in 1920s in the uk it's about a kid who moves house and you know he's about seven years old he's got no friends when he moves house he's you know he's moving school and house his life's all upside down gets given a rabbit for christmas and then it weirdly turned into a bit like toy story and they put the rabbit in the toy box and all the toys could talk to the rabbit it was a bit surreal some of the animation very dubious and then what happens then oh the boy gets really sick and has to have his rabbit with him but because he's so sick they then have to burn everything the boy touched for in case it's contagious and infected and then it ends with the rabbit coming back to life who's real and gives the boy courage to go and make friends so quite an interesting little story i put it on and normally my kids go oh dad turn it off don't want to watch it and but actually they both stuck with it for the 40 minutes and it was all, it was a nice little bedtime thing with a bit of a story there about children making friends so it was all right it wasn't the best thing i've ever watched but it was only 40 minutes long and they didn't turn it into a tv show thankfully um that was it so probably about a two and a half stars out of five i would give it it's very mediocre no the velveteen rabbits was featured in either friends or how i met your mother i forget which one but i'm sure it was a featured book in one of them it is a really old book so it was written like i say in 1920 when it when it which is the time obviously it's set in so yeah it's quite a famous book apparently i don't i'd never heard of it i, I just looked up on wikipedia as we were watching it as my children were asking about them like i said they quite enjoyed it it was quite a nice little thing to watch and it was christmasy themed with some snow and you know the, the boy getting a present for christmas and things so it was just quite a nice thing to watch with the with the boys fair enough good voice cast as well from what i can see helena bonham carter and Nico, nicola coughlin as well 
Yeah, no, it was it was well done. Like I say, some of the animation, I was trying to work out there's like a wooden toy line in it. Now, is he a wooden, is he moving in a wooden stilted way because they're trying to mimic how a wooden line would move or are the effects a little bit cheap? And I, I don't think they quite landed all the graphic effects quite right from, from my liking, but on the whole, very well done. Fair enough. And then instead of watching Pacific Rim, you rewatched last week's film. Yeah, I rewatched The Killer. Before my Netflix runs out, I thought I, re- I really enjoyed it. And I was listening to a podcast, Blank Check. I don't know if you've ever heard of this podcast, Blank Check with Griffin and David. I sometimes dip in and out of it when they've got some films on I like. They've done the whole run of David Fincher films, which I quite like. So I've listened to a few of the podcasts about the films I enjoy. And I was really listening. I was listening to the killer episode they did. And then I realised, actually, I've only ever seen it once, whereas all the other films I'd seen plenty of times, you know, like Seven or The Game or Panic Room or uh, Gone Girl, whereas The Killer I'd only seen once, I went back and watched it, and I think I got a bit more from it because I had a bit more of their background story. But Second Watch, oh, so good. It's a, just a really well-done film, very very Fincher film. If you can watch it on a good 4K telly with some nice sound, would recommend. So um, definitely worth two watches, and I don't regret it at all. Fair enough. Should we move on to a very, very brief games episode? Go. First one, there's been a new Atari 2600 released. So for those that aren't as old as I am, the Atari 2600 was one of the very first games consoles released at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. And what made it unique was, A, it was made by Atari, who made a lot of the actual arcade machines at the time, and B, it came with cartridges, so you could swap them in and out, and you could play representations of those actual home arcade machines on your console, your Atari 2600 at home. It was iconic. It had a bit of wood along the front, or at least fake plastic that looked a bit like wood. It had a couple of switches along the top and a nice big console slot that you could slam your console and uh, your cartridge into and be playing Space Invaders or Pac-Man before you knew it. Graphics were super basic, but they got an awful lot done in a very small thing. The joysticks are also iconic in the design of having an orange button in the top left corner, Proper waggly joystick, you know, really good little device. Anyway, it's obviously long gone. There's a lot of nostalgia for old consoles. You can buy replica Nintendos or, or Sega Master Systems or Playstations or all sorts of things. The 2600 Plus, which has been released, is terrible. <laughs> In the sense that, A, at least it works with your HDTV, which, once upon, which old Atari consoles almost certainly wouldn't easily. They're not even close to being even a 360p signal. Never mind, you know, a nice 4K one. This does do that. But in every other way, it's like an Atari, a classic Atari console. You even need the original Atari uh, cartridges to get it to work. So I just think this is an expensive waste of time and they could have done something an awful lot better. I like the idea of this. And I was on a video conference with somebody and I said, oh, is that an Atari 2600 in the background? They had this new box, the 2600 Plus that you show me here. And they said, oh, I have no idea. It's, it's my son's office. And I was like, okay, because I, I was super interested. And there's loads of Lego and things I wanted to quiz them about. But sorry, say again, they've done a modern console. And often you buy one of these retro redone consoles with HDMI on it. And it comes with all the games inside it. But you're saying you still need the cartridges. Yep. So if you buy the C64 or the Amiga one, they come with like 50 preloaded games or something like that. Just on a, an SD card, let's face it, inside of the console itself. So you can play those classic games. This one, I think they'll sell you a cartridge which has got 10 games in one in the cartridge. But other than that, you can use your... Primarily, it's designed for playing your old Atari classics on it. Who's got all those lying around? I do have a Mega Drive in the office, and that's quite cool. You can just boot it up and it 
it's got all the games on it, like you say, you know, like 20, 30 games and off you go. So that does seem a bit of a backward step. Yeah, it's not great. So but more news than that if we get it, but uh, I quite like a bit of a, a, a peek in the window of classic console gaming, but I think this is a miss rather than a hit. Agreed. I do um, love the retro style of it. That's fantastic. I used to have, well, my parents used to have one of these and I remember it as a kid. I uh, yeah, have very fond memories of mine. Although I, it was everything connected with wires in those days, and I did trip over the wire connecting the console to the TV and pull the TV off the stand, which made me very unpopular in the house. Oh yeah, that's not good for anybody, is it? Yeah, six-year-old Rod skedaddled and ran away from home for a little bit. Uh, but that's more more on that maybe a, a, a much later date. One very quick note on you and I both quite like Rock Paper Shotgun. It's a good PC gaming website. You get lots of good news on there. A little bit of news from this morning that actually they're investigating the sale of Rock Paper Shotgun, the sort of parent company. A lot of change in the gaming world at the moment. Through We talked about Yahtzee and The Escapist being all, all the, the video editing staff leaving there a couple of weeks ago. And now like one of the preeminent gaming blogs might be under threat as well. So a bit of a worry. Yeah, interesting they're saying they're investigating the sale. You know, they're it's not done, nothing's happened, but they're just put they they're just keeping everybody up to date. It's kinda nice in a way. But is he gonna set some hairs running? I mean there's nothing's happening at the moment, but it may happen. Yeah, it's a worry for your if you're a journalist working for that and you're doing all the reporting and things that oh my gosh, you know, I thought I had a job for X period of time and maybe I don't. Yeah, but also it's worrying for people looking at it because people might go, oh, I'll just go and start looking for something else then. Whereas actually it may all be fine in a non-event. Yeah, they have an ad-based model where they ask you to disable your ad blocker if you visit it or they have a subscription so you can see some sort of subscriber exclusive things, which I think is fine. I don't mind allowing adverts for something that depends on it that gives you good quality journalism for something like that. They're not running a YouTube here. But yeah, interesting. And, and you know, one of those little signals that you don't really like to see. No, it is a concern. Hopefully they'll be all all right, but I'll have to keep an eye on it. Yep. One last thing. Uh, I haven't done much else. I have played a little bit of Modern Warfare 3. I've said the solo player game was terrible. The multiplayer one is Modern Warfare, Call of Duty. If you like a bit of that, then that's fine. I don't think it's, I still don't think it's worth 70 quid and yet I'm still playing it. So that's a worry. So it's not worth the money, but it is still addictive. That's what you said. Yeah. Yeah, because it's Call of Duty and you need your hit of Call of Duty. Obviously. However, I do not, it appears. Um, I've been a bit rubbish. I've just been playing Mario. Still love it. And I'm just trying to slowly bumble my way through Mario Wonder on the on the Switch. That's fine. I, st- I need to go back and finish that. I just like it. It's just a, just a nice, uplifting game on the whole. I think it's really good. With a couple of annoying levels, which do wind me up from time to time. Fair enough. Anything else in games? Sadly not. Shall we move on to the show? Let's do a main show. And this is just a bit of a, a bit more nostalgia for us, really, isn't it? I do like a bit of nostalgia. So Stuff did an article, and you can tell it's getting close to Christmas because you start getting these countdowns of best thing ever or most iconic thing or best films of the year, and they're always 25s or 50s or things like that. Anyway, Stuff did this article on the 25 most iconic computers ever, and I just thought we could take a trundle through this and A, see how many we've owned, or B, do we agree with how iconic some of these are. Now, they're in an order. I don't think it's any it, one is greater than another because they're not actually putting numbers next to them all. So they view all of these as being equally iconic. Uh, that's, that's that's the take I took from it. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm in the same sort of place. I'm surprised they just weren't in chronological order, if I'm honest. 
Yeah, they do sort of mix it up a little bit, don't they? So we go through these. So absolute first one, which I don't think, well, certainly we are not going to disagree with, and anybody who listens to this podcast probably isn't going to disagree with, is the Apple iMac G3 from 1998. Absolutely an iconic computer that changed the world. And so iconic, like so many people will know what that is just by seeing it, the look, the shape, the colours, because it was just so different at the time. It wasn't beige. It was all in one. Beautiful. Love it. I never owned one. I did own, not the original, the next one that came along in Blueberry. It was a terrific computer. I had the, well, we might come to the other other part of it soon, but Iconic absolutely got me into it. I solidified my position as a Mac owner. What machine to do it though? Because oh, it's, it's, it is stunning. I've, a friend of mine had one in the office I worked in, like a shared office space back in the early two thousands, and I'd use it. And I was like, oh, it just looks so cool. I wanted one, but you know, life it was a very different world back then. It wasn't just that. It didn't have a three and a half inch disc drive. It didn't have only had USB A ports. It came with a CD tray. You know, it was just a great computer. Good keyboard as well. Terrible mouse. Good keyboard. I think that's why I liked it, though, because it was the simplicity, just one set of ports. And I quite like that kind of thing. So, oh, what a, it is a beautiful thing. It is. A less beautiful thing, but actually quite revolutionary in its way, is the next one on the list, which is the BBC Micro from 1981. So these are interesting machines in that they're endorsed by a broadcaster. <laughs> and there was nothing particularly revolutionary about the insides of them, other than the fact that we're sort of specced within Britain. They won a a competition to be who could make an initiative to push forward the learning of computers in the UK, sort of at the turn of the end of the 70s into the 80s. The BBC were sort of pushing this forward. They were going to make some programming to go along with it to teach children, but also adults how to program as well. And the BBC Micro was part of that, made by a company called Acorn. They appear later on this chart as well. But for me, an iconic machine because Teletext was made with it, which if you remember that in, in the UK was was it came alongside broadcast television, so you could get a little bit of information along, along with it. Uh, the, my first exposure to programming, proper programming, was on a BBC Micro at school where they were doing almost like an intranet for the school on BBC Micros using Teletext type stuff. So that was pretty cool back in the day. And certainly my first exposure to text-based word processing with characters for italics and things like that was was with a bbc micro so yeah quite an influential machine never owned one probably used one a little bit at primary school if i remember correctly and of course the game elite was developed on it i did see that in the notes i remember elite what a game yep i i didn't realize that and it says in the notes here is it was used as a tool for synth pop bands like erasure yazoo and depeche mode that's pretty cool that is pretty cool, especially back then. I mean, that was very forward thinking. Very much so. Cool machine. Next on the list, Alienware Area 51 from 1997. You got any thoughts about this? It looks big. Big is my only thought. I, I never had one of these either. I remember Alienware being a thing and then it got consumed into Dow, didn't it, if I remember correctly? It did. I, I, I would slightly take issue with this on this list. It's just a fancy PC tower case as far as I'm concerned. I'm quite surprised, and it's a bit of a spoiler, that there just is no sort of mid-90s beige PC. Because a beige box with a beige monitor running Windows is quite iconic in a way, because if we hadn't had that era, we wouldn't be in, got to the next era where everybody's got PCs in the 2000s. And Do you know what I mean? It, it's just that, that beige box with a beige keyboard and a beige mouse and a beige CRT screen... 
quite iconic. <laughs> Most people have tried to forget it, I think, because it just looks so outdated. But I'm surprised that's not in here. Just a generic beige box. Ah, uh, well. The Alienware one is, I think if you had lots of money, you might have picked one of these up. But for the rest of us who didn't have so much money and still want to play games, we'd just build our own one and save a thousand quid just to not have a box with the glowing eyes on it. So I vaguely see why it's here, but it's not the best machine on this list by a long way. I think it was quite different at the time, though, because it wasn't beige, as your previous point, and it was like the uber gaming machine, wasn't it? It was for gamers. It was. Moving on, another classic British machine, the Sinclair ZX Spectrum from 1982. So this... Again, I've only got a little bit of direct experience with of a neighbour of mine when I was very young, guessing one of these and bringing it back from the UK to Saudi where I grew up and saying, let's have a game or something, keeping in mind I had an Atari 2600 at about the same time. And I could stick a game in my console and I could play Space Invaders. Whereas when he wanted to play a game, he got out a magazine and he started typing in code because it didn't come with a tape drive initially. It didn't come with a disk drive. I think you could buy one down the line a little bit. Only had 16 kilobytes of memory. 16, yeah, 16 kilobytes of memory. And no debugger. So if you wanted to play a game on it, you typed it all in and you hit run and you had to sit and work out where your errors were as well. So famous for having a plastic keyboard and sort of popularizing home computing. Yes, I had a similar experience to you. I didn't have one of these, but a good friend of mine did. I remember going around his house and, and having a go on it. And I think he had a tape drive with it to store things on. It was it was a very weird time. It was a weird time, but they were sort of dictated by the technology. But it still brought fairly cheap computing to the masses. So I have a lot of respect for the Spectrum. And Clive Sinclair, who, brought, who popularized it, they gave him a knighthood for this and a few other sort of innovations he had. He came from calculators. He really wanted to make a really good calculator. That's what Sinclair were known for. And this was sort of an offshoot to get some money in so he could sort out his calculator. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, and then he went on and made the Sinclair C5. So ahead of his time with electric vehicles, he was the Elon of his day. <laughs> Elon of his day. Mm, okay, I can, I can see that. I think he was probably a better guy than Elon, frankly. I hope so. Uh, poor fella's dead now. Moving on. Sinclair was a great computer and the later models were very good as well. Really impressive gaming computers and lots of UK developers that went on to much greater things started on Sinclair's. Okay. And then next up, we've got the Dow Adamo XPS. Is this iconic? I think it's more for the XPS. That sort of metal looking laptop that were super thin and quite performant will ignore the battery life on these Dell machines for this time. Dell made a couple of really nice laptops, and these XPS ones were really quite noticeable in the business world, particularly for a while. Yeah, the XPS were the premium ones, like you say, potentially metal case, thin, uber portable, quite powerful, quite well respected, to be fair. I would go with the XPS brand, because the Adamo bit, never heard of it. No. This one, it's sort of, as you open the screen, it looks like it raises the laptop up a little bit, which is an interesting design quirk. Yeah, but... Who wants to type at 35 degrees? <laughs> That's a fair point. Maybe it's got a really good screen as well. I will give it points for being, A, the XPS being a good brand and being quite distinctive. You know, on this list of, as you say at the time, fairly sort of generic PC laptops particularly, it's a good looking machine. No, that's fair. That is definitely fair. Moving on, Commodore Amiga 500 from 1987. I had one of these. We did not in our house. We had an Atari ST at some point. Not one of these, so I never had an Amiga. So the Atari ST I always viewed as the cheap Amiga because they were this more or less the same, well, in many ways they were similar internally, 
the ST couldn't produce as many colors. I think it was better at sound. Quite a lot of them ended up in people's recording studios and things like that as mixers. But the Amiga was the graphics powerhouse because it had a number of dedicated chips designed for graphics and things like that. It came with 512 kilobytes, I remember, and I bought a 512 kilobyte extension module to put in it, which gave me a whole megabyte of memory. Wow, back in the day. Had integral disk drive, amazing graphics. It was a true 16-bit machine, and when you shifted from there, I had a Commodore 64 as well, from the 64 to the Amiga, the jump up in graphics technology was impressive. But more than that, for me, it was the first machine I remember with a windowing interface. It had no, Gem was the Atari ST one. Amiga OS had its own internal windowing thing. So you could launch programs on Workbench. That was the name of it. You could double-click things. You could get a hard drive for it later. It really was a revolutionary machine for its time. Yeah, and it, it looking at it, it does remind me of the Atari ST with, the, like you say, the window interface. Some of the games they list here, though. Lemmings, what a classic. Speedball 2, I used to love playing Speedball. And Cannon Fodder, love that. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, just some classics there that I fondly remember playing and things like lemmings that company went on to eventually be the group that were dma design that eventually became rockstar and grand theft auto so from humble beginnings look where these companies led to from machines like this yeah interesting legacy there very interesting moving on samsung q1 from 2006 i know nothing about this but an ultra portable pc yes please yeah one year before the iphone landed yeah, it's bad timing, isn't it? I mean, it's very piano black, glossy plastic. Yeah, with a massive keyboard in front of it. So I'm not really sure what this did. But anyway, it's what it is. Ultramobile PCs were a big deal for a little while. But as you say, iPhone came along not long afterwards and obliterated this market. Yeah, I think the right then was on the wall, wasn't it? That phones were going to do a lot more than what they did and removed that whole category ultimately. Apple Mac, 128K, 1984. Absolute classic. Definitely. This is a classic. Defining classic. Beautiful. Never owned one of these either. I didn't own one. We had them in one class at, at the school. I attended my secondary school in Scotland. It was the design classroom, I think, that we were in. And I played with one. And I remember at that point thinking, this is incredible. It was such a crisp black and white display. But again, my Amiga in the house had a workbench with color. And I was more impressed with that at the time. I remember being unimpressed that I had to put a disc into it to get it just to boot the operating system. The operating system was built into my Amiga at that point, I think. So, but again, classic machine and look where it's gone from this, from these humble beginnings. Oh yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, like you say, the, the, the legacy that it's generated came with Mac OS 1.0 as well. So yeah. no, fantastic device. Two and a half thousand dollars for one though. Not cheap. Especially in the 80s, insane. Microsurface 2008. Why is this in here? This is the only one I think I've, I've got some, quite well, one of the ones I've got questions with, but this one especially. I remember seeing this, but it never really was a thing. The Surface brand definitely is a thing and went on, but I've never seen one of these tables in real life. I've seen the videos when it got announced, but it, like I say, it just seems an odd one to be in here because it didn't really come to anything. I think it just defined the brand, and the Surface brand is quite strong for Microsoft these days. We have a Surface television in the office. It's an 85-inch television, I think, with multiple touch points on it. It spends most of its life off. It's quite complicated to actually get up and running in any usable way. It is just Windows 11, or Windows 10, as was underneath it all. But I don't think the Surface brand is as good as Microsoft think it is. 
It's a cool name. We do have some of the surface screens in our office and they're just in meeting rooms and you invite the room and then when you go in the meeting room, you just tap join and it takes you into the meeting. It is quite neat from that perspective. Um, I think the surface brand is good. I like it. That table, like I say, just never really became a thing and obviously came out after Apple did the iPhone anyway. So I'm guessing it's you know, a multi-touch interface. I sometimes I wonder whether Microsoft should make their own hardware. They do do some good stuff, but it does muddy the channels a little bit, I think, between them and their partners. Yeah, and they do, they've do. they made some odd choices over the years, like the Surface Go, was it, is cheapening the brand. You could buy reasonably cheap ones that are actually not performant at all. They're terrible chips that get terrible battery, and you'd it's regret spending... device. You'd regret money on them almost instantly, and then there's the laptop with the odd hinge that doesn't close all the way, so you can get biscuit crumbs in it. So... While I don't disagree, and then the other point was you often needed, they, they would consume so much power even plugged in that they could drain the battery while plugged in while using the graphics cards. So you've got to be careful where you attach an iconic label to something like this and then the products don't stand up to that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Next up, we've got the IBM ThinkPad. This has got to be iconic. Absolutely iconic. It brought the, forgive the word, sponsors, the nipple or the nubbin, whatever you want to call it, which was the touch pointer into the keyboard to save space and having a trackpad, indestructible keyboards, amazing screens. You could swap out a disk drive and put in a battery to get extended battery life. Real road warriors had ThinkPads. Yeah, those things are quite a thing. I mean, look at those chunky keys on the one in the picture there. Fantastic. That's from 92. Yeah, great laptop. Absolutely stood the test of time. Lenovo, talked about earlier, have the brand these days. IBM sold onto them. I don't think they're quite as well made as they used to be, but still an iconic brand. Yeah, definitely an iconic brand. And I think it's lived on under Lenovo's tenure, to be fair to them. Yep. Apple Mac Mini 2005. Hasn't changed much over the years, has it? No, we, we've basically had two designs for this. I'm amazed it hasn't shrunk a bit more or something happened with it. Um, and look at the one in the picture. It's got a little infrared by the side of the CD drive. It was quite a thing when it came out. I'm surprised it's in this list as a, you know, it's a budget PC. But um, I loved mine. I've had various incarnation incarnations of them i've just got one now with apple silicon in it so it's a great device and they're good all-rounders for people because this relatively cheap way of getting into the apple mac ecosystem i'd go with that although as we've talked about before eight gigs of ram and 256 gigs hard disks not the greatest place to start it is interesting you look at mini pcs these days you look at things like b link and the ser5 and things like that which have amd 16 core processors in them for just under 200 under 300 quid you can put a big an NVMe drive in it as you want, as much RAM as you want. They've got space for two and a half inch drive. If you can cope with Linux or Windows, they're actually fairly serious, properly mini PCs you can get these days. But they're not Apples. But I agree. I think at the time, great machine. Definitely. Great machine. Next up, we've got the Compact Portable 3, 1987. This is not what I would call portable. Well, for its time in 1987, it absolutely was. If you're thinking of a suitcase, for the, if you don't have the pictures to go along with this article, this is what this would be, and it wouldn't be a light suitcase at that. No, it's it's chunky, to say the least. Never owned one. I guess, though, portable devices got to start somewhere, and you know, if that's the biggest they ever were, and then they get smaller over time, at least what it is, but crumbs, what a thing. Well, there's two things about this. It's not a laptop. It doesn't have a battery. It's literally a luggable. And the second thing is it used a plasma screen for its for its display and probably an orange one as well they would have been in those days. So what an amazing looking thing. It is quite a thing. And a plasma screen in the 80s, so fair play. It's a bit ahead of the, it's, its time. 
wouldn't have been like plasma really didn't like getting carried around so that wasn't a great thing compaq eventually got bought by hewlett packard and vanished but for a long time were a really strong pc brand oh they were a great brand weren't they they were the Commodore PET from 1977, again, one of the first home computers you could buy. It came with an integral tape drive. You didn't have the woes of, of Sinclair, but would have been priced accordingly as well. Quite a cool-looking machine, though. If you think for the 70s, that's what you thought a computer was going to look like. It does look like an office terminal. It totally does. And Commodore made three very iconic machines. This, the C64, and, and, the, and the Amiga. And then they kind of died. Jack Tramiel, and uh, they had all sorts of woes. Uh, moving onwards which was a bit of a shame for the 80s and the early 90s i think commodore had a really strong brand which they managed to throw away yeah it is a shame because like you say they just disappeared into nothing they did uh, the pc and apple killed them and speaking of apple we've got a computer another computer on this list that i owned the apple ibook g3 was mine a g3 i had the special edition one in silver i guess it was a g3 uh, i ran the original version of os 10 on that bad boy looked a bit like a toilet seat but uh, absolutely remarkable the first computer i ever had wi-fi on terrific machine and it's hard to imagine not having wi-fi these days but i remember those days and you had to ethernet in or you'd use it a lot offline and, and game or code um what a device though and obviously that then went to the next ibook g3 which is one i had the white white snow one but what a device and it had the cool uh cable thing where you could wind your cable up in it it's fantastic and little touches, like when you'd plug in the, the charger, it would go orange, and then once it was charged, it would go green on, on an LED ring around it. Just little innovations like that were just solidified Apple, in my mind, as being the manufacturer to buy from. And they didn't do any of those nice little foibles anymore. They don't. This even had a carrying handle built in at the back of it. Yeah, it was a cool device. It was a cool device. Moving on, we get as close to you wanted as your beige box, the original IBM PC from 1981. Look at that, two disk drives as well. Five and a quarter inch disk drives. Wow, and that screen looks tiny. It really does, and that would be a resolution of like 128 by something, no doubt. Yeah, and no mouse. And no mouse. Why would you have a mouse? It would have been DOS. Yeah, I know, it would all been character-based. So yeah, very much of an era. And you're right, maybe that is the beige boxes I was after. That is it, absolutely it. And there's a lot of beige in the list. If you scroll back up even to the Amiga or the BBC Micro, you can see beige is the colour. Yeah, beige was very much the colour until 98, wasn't it? I do not know what the next thing is. Yeah, this is questionable. The HP TouchSmart Crossfire 2007. Looks like an all-in-one. First mass market desktop with a touchscreen. This left me by. I don't think this should be on the list. Fair enough, I had a touchscreen, but the bank terminals had touchscreens too, and they were more interesting than this device. Agreed. Shall we move on quickly to the shuttle? So the shuttle uh, was one of the first sort of mini PCs you could get. You could actually get a full-length graphics card in there and use it for gaming and began to, began to popularise in the PC space, at least. Smaller PCs with lots of components in them that was just well-made. I used to have a shuttle PC. I bought it off a guy at work. Loved it. It was such a great little box. Full of, it was just a great little thing. It was. I don't know why. I really enjoyed it. But that was probably towards the end of my PC era. Yeah, they had their time in the sun for sure, Shuttle. And PC boxes now come in a whole range of sizes, but I'd say Shuttle really started it on the PC side. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next up is the Apple iMac 2007. They've got a lot of devices from 2007-ish in here, I see. 
I think it was a time of great innovation, wasn't it? There was lots of changes started by that original iMac G3 that we started the list with. And this one, I think, is the design we really still have to this day, frankly. Big LED, uh, big LCD screen, bit of a chin, foot, non-height adjustable. My bugbear to this day that it's not height adjustable. But classic DVD drive-in on the side. Not that you need DVD drives anymore, but just put it all about the content being in front of you. It, it was a great design and stood them really maybe not quite 20 years but we're heading towards 20 years of that sort of design now you're right it's a fantastic design and there was a lot happening back then a lot more innovation a lot more form factor changes whereas i'm guessing now we're all a bit more uh settled in our in our forms aren't we i guess and so we're not seeing it so often now we are but i look at this now and i think why are the usb ports all on the back why is everything on the back hidden away from the user why is the screen not height adjustable there were a few compromises too but those compromises remain till this day uh, you're not wrong the acorn archimedes from 1987 uh, so this was the, uh, the company that made the bbc micro which we did up, right up at the top of the list 32-bit machine amazing for its day was able to shove graphics around really cool one great application called zarch which was a game that i remember playing which had voxels if you remember voxels there were volumetric pixels so you could actually do proper 3d environments with it looked very chunky but that was my one experience of the archimedes and then it vanished without a trace i had a few experiences my friend had one up until the late 90s i'm gonna say mid 90s until they went away his family were all in on acorn and they were even doing modular ones where you could you know buy a slither and bolt it on kind of thing it was quite cool but sadly just died a death didn't make it through yeah uh, a casualty of the pc and mac wars as was our next entry the atari st which wasn't mine it was my brother's but i loved this thing and looking at it now i recognize all of that the keyboard the mouse everything loved it we didn't have the atari monitor we just used a, a regular tv but um oh what what a thing i loved it it was great and for me because it was my brother's it was a He's a bit older than me. It was a treat that I could go and play with it and use it when he wasn't around. So fond memories of playing on that. I mean, it's got this sort of standard. It's a 108 key PC layout for the keyboard, but I love the way the F keys were angled. It just I thought it looked very cool. It is cool. It is a cool design, and it's the same with the, the vents on the back and the Atari badge all on that that sort of angle. It, it was a cool, cool thing. What can I say? So if memory serves, these all used the same Motorola 6830 processor, as did the original Macintosh, I want to say, or certainly one variant of the Mac. Yeah, the Macintosh. The Apple II used something else. So that chip, the 6830 Motorola RISC chip, was a really popular thing for these, this generation of computers. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're probably right. I vaguely remember that. Um but oh, I was I lovely remember that and playing so many games on it like Rick Dangerous and things and that's where I played Speedball and Lemmings and what have you nice and also helped Fatboy Slim in 808 State as well so as I said had kudos when it came to sound yeah I vaguely remember you could plug things into it I think my brother did something with the keyboard with it definitely uh, moving on the Epson HX20 from 1983 they're claiming this is the first laptop ever it's just a portable typewriter Sorry, it's it's yeah. It looks more like a typewriter with, and a calculator with a you know like a receipt ability ability to print receipts on it. It's a very odd sort of device. It's got a fair bit of stuff on there, you know. Integral printer, integral integral micro cassette drive. Presumably, it's got some sort of some sort of video output that you don't just have to use that screen that's on it. It's a very small screen. It's a very, it'd probably get two lines of text on there. 
Yeah, very tiny. And then we're on to the Commodore 64. From 1982, my intro, proper intro to my own home computing. I did try a little bit of coding on it. I didn't get very far. I was far too stupid. Probably still am, frankly. But it was the games that made the C64 absolutely endorsed by the UK's bedroom coders. So many incredible talents came out of of writing games for this uh, particular machine. So many incredible games really sort of launched Commodore into the stratosphere. If you were a cool kid in the 80s, you had a Commodore 64. I was not, but my brother clearly was because he had one of these. Your brother was a cool kid. Yeah. Now, I remember seeing that, obviously, when we had the ST, that was just led against the wall near the near the Atari, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I had a tape drive and a five and a quarter inch uh, floppy drive for this thing, but it would also take cartridges as well. Not that I had any cartridges for the back of it. So a huge amount of expandability to the thing. The, what they crammed in at 64 kilobytes of RAM was incredible. You think, you know, how much are floppy disks held towards the end of the, you know, the the solid state computing revolution. But yeah, it was a terrific thing. You could plug two joysticks in at the side of it. Very modular. Loads of games off tape. Terrific. Yeah, what, what an iconic machine. That one is truly iconic for this list. It really is. And a nice beige colour. More brownie than beige. <laughs> beige, man. I don't know how we ended up on beige. I wonder like, how the whole world ended there for a good 20-year period. Yeah, you could, they could have at least painted it. Moving on, the Asus EPC from 2007. And this sort of spearheaded a, a revolution of, of ultra-mobile computing, really. I had one of these. I don't think I had one, but I remember we had some at work memory serves and they were quite a thing for a while these super lightweight ones especially if you're going down into the server room to do something you should take it with you yeah what a device decent battery life came with linux the reason i got one is i managed to get mac os installed on it i was very pleased with myself that sounds like too much effort for me well if memory serves it only had an 800 by 600 screen or some odd resolution screen mac os did not look right i sold it to somebody at work fairly quickly afterwards with mac os on it but a great little machine just showed the potential of what you could do with sort of small cheap ish hardware i feel like it was less than 300 quid to buy one so and just sort of another solid entry in sort of a computing revolution really yeah they were super cheap at the time for what you got i think they were really cheap the Amstrad CPC from 1984. So this is what Sinclair became, really, the Amstrad CPC. The, they, they came with a version of BASIC, so you could do coding on them. Had an integral tape drive, so you could do bits and pieces. Very British machine. I don't think you've got many Amstrads anywhere else in the world. Yeah, you're probably right. I kind of like the look of the thing. It's a bit weird. The arrow keys are right at the top in the center. I've never seen that before. But yeah, above the numpad. But I quite like the color scheme and everything on it. It actually looks very nicely laid out and designed. Yeah, I had one of these in my bedroom. I think my father was looking after it for someone who'd gone back again in Saudi, who'd gone back to the UK, and it was parked next to my bed, and they'd turn it on every so often, and it looked like this picture. It would come up with basic and a flashing prompt, and I didn't know what to do beyond that, because I was a Commodore guy. I didn't know anything about Amstrad or what they were. Of course, the company that launched Alan Sugar's career, who's now Lord Sugar from The Apprentice. Uh, but yeah, I mean, incredible that Sinclair lists sort of lived on within this, and that such a, a business titan as Alan Sugar came about as a consequence too. Yeah, that's true. Some good history in there. There is a bit. And I think the last thing for our list, I'll let you talk about it because you're its biggest proponent. And the last one is the iPad. And I remember this getting launched and I loved it. And I bought one the day it came out here in the UK. I think you did too, actually. What a device. I loved it. 
and then I remember selling it this next year because the iPad 2 came out, which was literally leaps and bounds ahead. But this was ideal for me. This was just, and I, this is probably why I love the iPad now. What I can just touch all my stuff, you know, I can just browse through. And it came out though, and it had iWork on it, and you could use it with keyboards. You can use mice, but it, they'd already done so much on the stack of software and stuff that just came with out of the box, and it showed a lot of promise. And I think this could have gone on to really revolutionize mobile computing because it came with a cellular version but it just didn't as we now know the software just hasn't moved on quick enough to be fair but it, super interesting at the time because this could should have been a laptop beta but just never quite got there did it i agree and i think if steve had stayed at the helm maybe we'd be looking at a very different apple ipad than we do these days as a look at the picture of steve obviously releasing it in 2010 look at the size of the bezels on that thing yeah, they were some chunky, chunky bezels. I loved that thing. And it had a fat back on it, if you remember. It was quite a, a bulbous back on it. But at the time, what a device, though. I mean, that's 13 years ago. And I've got one now, you know, it's sat here on the side. I love it. But that one really told me, yes, this this is what I want to do and use in the future. But like I say, sadly, I just don't think it's moved along quick enough. Yeah, good device. I, I think the phone has turned out to be the truly revolutionary thing. Uh, well, evolutionary thing as it's become. But yeah, the original iPad, I wanted one so badly and I did get one on day release. I remember I was going on a long car trip the day it came out and sitting playing Plants vs. Zombies on the thing and feeling quite car sick, actually. I wasn't driving, obviously. I was a passenger at that point. But uh, I was just amazed that I could have such a big screen and it was so tactile and, you know, it was it was going to be the next big thing in computing. I don't think it's turned out to be so. It's certainly good for Slay the Spire, but yeah. My memory is going on holiday with my wife to Edinburgh not long after it came out. And we were just sat in a cafe. We put it on the table and we were looking at the map of where we we're going to go. And I think like the waitress came over or something like, oh, is that the new iPad? Because it was new. They weren't very popular. And then we were just using it, like I say, to plan our day and look around the map. And it was quite cool. We just chuck it on the table and, and look at where you're going to go for the day. So fondly remember my first ipad loved it i think that was quite an interesting list i think it should have probably been the top 20 at a push not the top 25 it feels like there's a couple in there that are a bit questionable yeah there's some filler in there for sure i think things like the epc are fine i'm really not sure about that epson i'm really not sure about the alienware but you know i think it's, it's at this time of year as you sort of a bit of nostalgia look back at the ghosts of computers past it's not necessarily a bad thing true should we move on to app of the week App of the week. I've struggled with this slightly this week because I've been very busy and not had an awful chance to do it. But one thing I have been using is a thing called OmniPlan. This is very specific. If you ever need to sort of map out a project and do your Gantt chart and work out your dependencies and things like that, and you're looking for a Mac version of that, not the usual Microsoft project, which is actually falling by the wayside these days anyway for things like Monday.com and uh, other such web-based project management tools. OmniPlan is a good shout. It's quite old school. You can link tasks together. You can apply effort and staff. You can work things down from uh, an end date or from a beginning date. And if you're just trying to visualize a project from beginning to end, even if it's only to get people talking about it, OmniPlan works really well. All the apps from the Omni group are good. They can be a bit slow to move forward from time to time. I did really want to talk about OmniGraffle because I've got a lot of time for that as well. But I think I've mentioned it in a previous show. So OmniPlan, if you're trying to plan out a project, it's not a cheap app, but it's a really good one. All the Omni apps are good. They definitely get a seal of approval. They're always at good, high quality. They generally get updated very frequently. Can't recommend anything by the Omni group enough. Yep, fair. Thing of the week. I've put in an app this week, and I've gone with Audio Hijack because 
I got cheesed off with Audacity. And I really wanted a mute button so I could mute my input to you if I needed a cough or, or whatever it may be. So we're trying that out this week. I've just purchased it. It was $70. And hopefully this audio sounds good and I've muted every time I've coughed and hopefully the export will all work. But I was quite impressed with it. It's a very neat app. And I'm now I'm going to use it in a crude way take the input from my microphone, let me mute it when I want to cough, and then output it to a WAV file. So hopefully this will all sound good. But yeah, super pleased with it, and very nicely crafted, crafted app that looks fantastic. So that's my thing of the week. Yep, previous app of the week from me, previous talked about in some detail on this show, and hopefully Chris has as much luck with it as I do, because there would be no show without it. Yeah, this is true. So fingers crossed it's all going to work. So this is going to be our risk for the show i think so uh, all on me if it's wrong no pressure none at all anyway i think that's it if anybody wants to get in contact with us rod is at g5 maniac at mastodon.scot i'm at underscore cgp at mastodon.social or you can drop us an email at wait from sleep at protonmail.com talk to you next week chris cheers rod <laughs>